Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters podcast, a series of candid conversations with leading experts about how individuals and organizations can grow and protect their finances, tailored around current events and trends. Here's your host for today's podcast, Brian Peterangelo. Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun, giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. Today is Friday, February 11th, 2022. I'm Brian Peterangelo. With me today, I'd like to introduce our roster of investing experts. Some might even say they're super, just like this weekend. We've got Steve Haight, our head of equities, Rajiv Sharma, head of fixed income, and Justin Tantalo, senior lead research analyst, going to give us an update and some thoughts on the cryptocurrency market. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on our key.com slash wealth insights, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our key questions article series, addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. It's been an interesting week in that there were not many major economic releases during the week other than the heavily followed consumer price index inflation print yesterday. We'll talk more about that at length today, but first we'd like to turn to Steve to get an update on his thoughts on what's going on with the market, the breadth, the volatility, and some earnings that continue to roll in, and just your overall seat from your perspective. Steve. Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everybody. And you know, you look at this week and it feels like it's been a lot longer than uh, five trading days since we had one of these conversations. Um, You look at this, it's been a back and forth, uh, lots of churning. Um, And you know, the market's really been coming to terms with what the Fed is likely going to have to do in terms of its level of aggressiveness. The things that have really caught my attention, though, is we've, we've continued to trade below the 50-day moving average. We, we recaptured the 200-day about 10 trading days ago, but we haven't been able to punch through the 50. Um, and to me, that, that says that there's still a, a tug of war going on between the bulls and the bears in the market. If we had been able to retake that 50-day moving average, I'd say, okay, the bulls are back in control We've, adjust, we've adjusted to the expectations of what the Fed's going to do and all that. And we just haven't been able to do it yet. Breadth has been okay, uh, but we've definitely had this two-way market activity. And, you know, there's two things that have really concerned me, and I, and I want to get Rajiv's perspectives on this. You know, first is we've continued to see high-yield CDX spreads widen during the course of the week. We've moved to multi-month highs. We've taken out the highs that we saw last December. That, to me, remains a point of concern. And then the second thing is, my goodness, take a look at the yield curves. And it doesn't matter what yield curve you pick. They are collapsing right now. And literally, we're at the point where the Fed could hike two times or one 50 basis point hike, and they would be inverting yield curves across the board. And to me, that's a real concern. And that's where I think they're in a box. You know, they clearly have to do something about inflation. My goodness, seven and a half percent. We haven't seen that since the 1970s. Or if you if you think the 1980 early 1980s numbers were were legit. And, you know, that doesn't even get into the uh, the 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 computing of those numbers, where if we had equivalent numbers today, the number would be running 10. So, Rajiv, what are you thinking right now? Uh, good morning, Stephen. Good morning to everyone. Uh, it's a great point you make there about the yield curve collapsing. Uh, that's something that I'm keeping my eye on. Uh, we really have seen those twos and tens collapse to about 50 basis points. Uh, we haven't been that tight. We haven't been that low for a while, and I think that's going to continue. 
Uh, even if the Fed starts to raise rates, we could still see the back end of the yield curve continue to be stubborn. And if that happens, you're going to see that yield curve flatten even more and inversions are likely. And uh, better than any economics, economics major out there, we all know that uh, when there's an inversion of the yield curve, uh, that's a really strong signal for recession. I think they've predicted that eight times in the past whenever the yield curve has inverted. Uh, as you mentioned- I'm sure this time will be different though, Rajiv. I'm sure it'll be different. <laughs> yeah, it's always different. It's always different. Uh, as you had mentioned about the CPI print though, I mean, that 7.5% print was the hottest read uh, since the early 80s, late 70s. And, and the impact to the bond market at that point was really quick. Uh, we saw that two-year treasury note yield, it surged to 1.54%. Uh, we saw the 10-year go past that 2% mark. That's some kind of psychological resistance point. People wanted to see if we would make it beyond 2% on the 10-year. We did it immediately almost. Uh, it's the first time we've seen that since 2019. And now what does the Fed do here? I mean, the Fed's got some big problems right now because you're looking at the yield curve. They wanna look at that as a measurement of what to do as far as how flat we can go. And you look at the Fed and, and you know that March meeting is coming up in about five weeks. Uh, the probabilities of a Fed rate hike increased uh, for right now, the probability is around three hikes by June and six total hikes by the end of the year. So, I mean, there's a lot going on here. I, I think that one of the important things to look at is the big question of does the Fed raise rates 25 basis points in March or do they raise them by 50 basis points? And uh, before that CPI print, the probability of a 50 basis point lift was around 34%. After that CPI print, the odds on a 50 basis point lift in March has risen to 62%. The only so thing gating us, the only thing gating us from a 50 basis point raise, Rajiv, really mm -hmm. is this historical idea of historical precedent, right? Because they've they've never kicked off, at least in 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 my investing career, a tightening cycle with a 50 basis point hike. But that doesn't mean they can't. Correct. Correct. They've never done it. There's no precedence. And I think the market would be lost if they did it. They wouldn't know exactly how to handle that. Uh, 50 basis point hike, if they were to do it. It could, it could send a really strong statement from the Fed that, hey, we're here to control inflation. We're going to do whatever it takes. But I think the market sentiment will be more about the Fed must really be behind the curve that they're taking this big measure right now. Exactly. It'd be, it'd be a sign of panic, right? Yes, I mean, that's exactly. the way I, I would take it as an equity market guy. I would see it as a sign of panic that they're so far behind the curve that they're going to do something that, that's going to cause stuff to break. You know, they're going to be so aggressive. That they're going to break something and that that's really the that's really the fear on on our side on the equity side that is a big fear and you have the uh we, i don't know if you caught those comments uh, late yesterday st uh, louis fed president uh, bullard came out and said that we need to remove accommodations as fast as we added them uh, and that's pretty scary when you say something like that because they've added accommodations in about a week so it was like how fast is the fed going to move <laughs> well, well that was that that i i was going through my news uh my my news screen on on bloomberg last night and and for goodness sake there was talk of an of an intermediate cut coming today yes after after those comments last night which to me was mind-boggling i mean i've i've literally seen one intermediate move in in my career and that was during a crisis right, this is exactly. not this this is not a crisis this is a, this is a Fed that has been behind the curve, and and there are re but there are reasons for it. I mean, obviously the COVID situation, they were going to be as accommodative as possible. But you know, I, this talk of this intermediate move stuff to me is just mind-boggling at this point. I, yeah, I, to, ha 
to have an emergency meeting just makes uh, very little sense and causes more panic, as you mentioned in the market. But the Fed officials, other Fed officials came out immediately this morning and said, no, we don't really believe in the intermediate or emergency rate rate hikes. Uh, we want to push back. Let's have a more measured approach. But we've got five weeks before the March meeting, and you're going to have so many more talking heads coming out and, and causing even more volatility in this market. And, you know, historically, you're right, Steve, you mentioned it earlier in the last four rate height cycles in 1990 to 2000 present 2021 present day 22, I should say, the Fed has never started with a 50 basis point cycle. But the key here difference is that 94 to 95, 99 to 2000, 2004 to 2006, and then 2016 to 2019 being the four prior rate height cycles, inflation at that time was in the two to three and three quarters percentage range. So now we've got 7.5, big difference. It almost begs the question to go 50 instead of 25, other than the Fed trying to be cautious about over-rotating too quickly, but they're a little bit behind the curve. What are your thoughts on that, uh, that move? Well, I, I, I completely agree, Brian. I mean, at the end of the day, they, they let the inflation genie out of the bottle a year ago, and transitory was always, uh, well, there, there are words to describe what, trans, what the transitory argument was, but, uh, but I'm not going to use them on this call. They, at the end of the day, though, the, 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 the real issue that we've got to deal with here is what is going to happen when they get deeper into this cycle and how far can they go with the market being willing to accept it you know when i look at earnings earnings continue to trend up and we continue to hear good things from companies in terms of what they're seeing yeah there are supply chain issues and those that has clearly contributed to to the inflation numbers no doubt uh, what but about, what about the argument that because this would be the first rate hike at 50 basis points if they did it, um, I think pretty much everybody in consensus agrees that the cycle will, the hiking cycle will go far further than 50 basis points in totality. So that doing 50 basis points in the first step is, uh, I mean, maybe surprising to some because it hasn't happened in a while, but doesn't necessarily mean that rate uh, rises will be higher than we all initially expected. It just kind of means a little bit faster than uh, was originally expected. Is that something that we may get to an equilibrium or will it necessarily sort of spook the market that they did 50 at once? I think you're gonna need to make sure that, that inflation does not, you have to make sure inflation actually starts to slow down. If you do a 50 base point hike and still have no impact on inflation or we don't see a second half of year turnaround story, then we're gonna have some major volatility in this market. You're gonna see inverted yield, yield curves as well. 50 basis point hike uh, is, gonna, is going to get us dangerously close to the inverted point. I think with the inflation where it is right now, you even have buyers stepping in right now on the longer end of the curve, so that's keeping it flat as well. Interesting. I mean, to me, the real question is gonna be where, how, how, lo how long is this cycle gonna be? And are they gonna be, you know, where's the terminal rate? I've heard a number of different arguments here in the last week or two, including from a couple really smart guys, Stanley Druckenmiller, Larry Lindsay. They're talking about inflation running multiple years in the seven to 10% range and talking about Fed funds rates being five to 7%. And I, I can't fathom that, not in the, not in the situation where we've got 
uh, federal budgets where they're at. I mean, can you imagine what the interest expense is going to be on the debt at that point? Uh, we're going to have real, real serious issues in terms of financial flexibility if if they do tighten that much, which begs the question, you know, where maybe we can't go that far. Maybe if we go 50 basis points, there's really only another 50 to 100, 150 basis points they can go before you see really significant economic repercussions from higher rates. And the fact is, we're just going to rip with inflation at 400 basis points or higher for the rest of this decade, and we better get used to it. But, but if that's the case, then there's going to be a whole host of things we're going to have to deal with, including lower multiples for stocks, um, commodities outperforming like we haven't seen for 50 years, all kinds of stuff. I mean, to me, this is really the, the this is the year of the Fed, if there's any, if there's ever, if there was ever a year of the Fed. Rajiv, let me ask you this question based on what we just heard from Steve. Would it be strategically advantageous to then in the first raise, shock and awe the market, um, to try and prick the inflation bubble, knowing what we what Steve had just said is that the terminal rate doesn't have much upward flexibility. So maybe we can get the job done with an initial shock, so that we don't have to raise rates, uh, you know, beyond that 200 or 250 basis points sort of ceiling that Steve alluded to. If you were the chairman of of the Fed, would you consider that strategy? Well, definitely the Fed has that option now. The Fed, I don't think, wanted to get the probabilities of 50 basis point hike as high as they are right now. They also didn't want to telegraph the 50 basis point hike uh, in any way either. I think it makes a lot of sense if the Fed, uh, they could take the opportunity to prick the bubble, as you said, and, and raise 50 basis points. The issue would then be after that, that where do you stop that? I mean, why are we going to immediately see an impact by raising 50 basis points? If we don't, then does every meeting become a live meeting where we have to continue to raise rates and that kind of magnitude? And not having a precedence for 50 basis points, again, adds to much more volatility in the market. If it's truly about controlling inflation, and I think that it is, uh, they're going to have to come up with some kind of way of not only just raising rates, uh, but they have to also, raising rates is somewhat of a blunt tool, if you ask me. There's other ways to do this. I think they have to really consider the quantitative tightening. That's something that could be a little more nuanced and that could help us a lot in this situation, especially with the yield curve. Uh, if they start using quantitative tightening, you could see the, the back end of the yield curve start to rise. That would that would definitely help a lot more than just how simply- crazy yeah, is it, How crazy is it that we're having these conversations and they're still buying bonds for goodness sake? Exactly, the taper program isn't even over. It's and not even over. It's not even over and they're talking about emergency meetings. Exactly. It's just not gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. It's, well, it's, it's, it's over in March, so we'll see what happens, gentlemen. That's a great way to end the conversation on inflation for today, super robust opportunity. And uh, we'll rotate now to Justin, as we have him on the call, to talk a little bit about cryptocurrencies for our audience. Justin, what are your thoughts at a very high level in terms of defining crypto for our audience? And what are your thoughts in the next couple of minutes? Sure. No, thank you. Um, I mean, I guess first I'd say that we should remember that crypto is a relatively new asset class, right? Started uh, less than 15 years ago with, with Bitcoin. Uh, and although it's growing like wildfire, that, that's really a short history when you think that investors have been buying and selling corporate equity for the past 400 years. We know corporate equity inside and out. We know less about crypto given the short history. 
Um, and, and so if we if we start with the, let's say, broadest definition, and this is going to be a little bit rich, so bear with me, is that I, I would suggest that crypto represents decentralized property rights for scarce digital goods. Um, and and let, let me unpack that just a little bit. So when I talk about um, decentralized property rights, that really refers to the fact that you know, custody and control of crypto assets takes place on a, a globally distributed peer-to-peer -peer network. So if we think about Bitcoin, for example, ownership records of who owns Bitcoin are maintained concurrently on a network that has right now approximately 15,000 nodes uh, distributed globally. And those nodes can come and go without disrupting the collective record. So, you know, property rights have never been stored like that in history. It's always been a sort of down at City Hall, they'll tell you who owns this property. But this is a case where there are 15,000 copies of the same collective record. And so, uh, and no one entity is sort of in control of that. And, and so if we, if we go to the second part of the definition, uh, which is that the, these, these property rights, they cover scarce digital goods, right? And, and until now, that's been kind of a misnomer. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, until Bitcoin, the concept of digital scarcity didn't really exist, right? You could copy an MP3 for those of us old enough to remember what that was. Uh, and or JPEGs as many times as you wanted. Uh, no one really owned it, right? Uh, crypto assets are, are different and, and they introduce this difference that each Bitcoin has an owner. Uh, and importantly, there will only ever really be, you know, 21 million Bitcoins outstanding. So I think that's how I think about the definition of, of crypto and, and how it's different and, and sort of, uh, you know, what's the, what, what does it actually bring that's new to, uh, to, to our world? So, Okay, that's great definition and a backdrop for our listeners. And we may have the opportunity to talk for hours on this uh, because it's such a great topic. But I'll ask you one final question, Justin, that I think will really help our listeners understand. And that is, given all the volatility, given all the buzz, given all the potential risks and potential rewards, how do we think of crypto from an investments perspective inside of somebody's portfolio? What are your quick thoughts on that? Sure. No, I mean, yeah, when you think about investments, the, the, the two dimensions that come to mind are your risk and your return. Uh, if you think about the potential return, uh, it boils down to how do you value these assets? Uh, and I've been down that rabbit hole. Uh, and what I can tell you is that some of the most prominent valuation models uh, in the crypto community are, to be honest, they're pretty unimpressive. Uh, they're vague about how they define value. It's not necessarily in dollar terms. Uh, and, and, and most of them, uh, at, some, at some level, mistake correlation for causation. And so for, for me, the best analogy here, and it may be cliche, but I think it's apt, is that you should think about Bitcoin as digital gold. You know, both of them have verifiable scarcity. Both yield nothing. And both have, uh, you know, relatively low correlations to traditional assets like stocks and bonds. And so it, we should remember that investors have been struggling to model gold's fair value for hundreds of years. And I expect that on the return side for Bitcoin, we will struggle for many years to come. And, and, and so I guess and the last thing to say on the risk side, and this is probably not news to anybody, uh, but crypto assets are exceptionally volatile. 
right? In the last 10 years, if you think about Bitcoin, it's declined by 80% from its recent highs three separate times. So each time the price is recovered, but you know, the volatility of some of these digital assets is, is certifiably in a league of its own. I mean, a decline of 80% three times in 10 years tells me that crypto owners, um, you should not be surprised if that happens again. And so, you know, I'll, I'll end it here, but uh, I'll say that uh, crypto assets are, are exceptionally interesting, but they're certainly not suitable for all investors. Excellent. Steve, Rajiv, Justin, thanks for providing your insights. We always appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. And be sure to subscribe to the Key Wealth Matters podcast through your favorite podcast app. As always, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, portfolio strategist, or advisor for more information, and we'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of a collection of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are offered by Key Bank National Association, member FDIC, and an equal housing lender. Key Bank Private Bank and Key Bank Institutional Advisors are part of Key Bank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services LLC or KISS, member FINRA, SIPC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency USA or KIA. KIS and KIA are affiliated with Key Bank. Investment and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. KeyBank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decisions. This content is copyrighted by KeyCorp 2021.